Okay, so it's been a minute since I've done a podcast. Um, and I had said on social media once upon a time that I'm not doing podcasts anymore unless I have somebody entertaining to talk to. And I've been paying attention and I've been out there behind the scenes working with athletes and such and uh, come along and find Ryland Shattuck. Did I say it right? Yes, sir. And I thought, you know, I want to talk to this guy. I want to find out what he's all about. And he's, he's showing up pretty well. He's racing really well these days. And I think he's definitely a force to reckon with in the future. This young man sitting here with me is showing up very well these days in races. And, and I wanted to pick his brain a little bit, see how he's doing. So aside from me dipping into your long run today, how are things? I'll be honest with you, man. Uh... I had a pretty draining weekend in a, in a variety of ways, uh, some personalized stuff and then some, uh, just getting DQ'd this last weekend oh, yeah. and the, the rules surrounding that, that was a little bit, and just the, I'm not a huge people person. I'm an introvert. So spending that much time, uh, with more people coming up and talking to me than has probably ever happened in my life. And like about something that, uh, about my race and talking about that. It was just a lot of conversation for me. And then I got back into town around 2 a.m., slept until 6, and then worked a 48-hour shift at the firehouse. And uh, my crew loves to talk, so more more talking. And then also, you know, like you're taking care of patients and trying to find out what they need and taking them to hospitals and everything So and doing trainings and all that. So lots of uh lots of dynamic movement over the last couple of weeks and uh, i've either been traveling or paying back trades at work with like 72 or 48 hour shifts uh when i'm home so i haven't been home very often so i was uh really looking forward to being home and then i ended up being locked out of my house for a while this morning so i was like man i just want to take a nap. oh man so uh you yeah i feel good yeah, you touched on it, and so I, I am curious to go there. I was at World Championships last year with VJ and, and those guys, and mm. uh, it was interesting because I saw Lindsey Webster, Atkins Webster, walking around you know the uh, the little village, and on her tights there was this big swath of chalk on her tights, and. Um, I wasn't terribly sure what that was all about. So I asked her, I said, so, so what's going on with that? I said, she goes, well, I put the chalk on my tights. So before I go up to a rig and make sure my grip is good, I'll rub my hands on it. She also uses like antiperspirant, which makes sure that her hands are real dry when she grabs hold of something. And I thought, well, that's, that's really cool. That's, that's a really smart thing to do. Uh, and, you know, I just let it go. I, I mean, I teased her about you should get your own line of tights with chalk on them and stuff. You know, you know, we, yeah. we played with it a little bit. And then when I heard that you got DQ, by the way, I, I reached out to Tamara because she's my, my boots on the ground when I'm not there. And I was asking her what the stats were. And, and she said you got DQ'd for chalk. And I thought, what? And so it made me kind of reflect on the previous year and seeing, you know, the whole situation. Obviously, she was using chalk. And then it made me think about um, Kempson was wearing those bleg mitts or whatever they call them. And, I, and I'm yeah. thinking, well, what happened with the rules? I mean, all of us, I'm assuming that it wasn't in the rules last year. And I, I, you know, I have to tell you, I thought you were so gracious about the way you approached the situation. Um, you know, basically apologizing for not being aware of what the rules were and whatever. And I thought, um, now, that's a stand-up guy, but at the same token, I was a little pissed. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Um, and incidentally, I'm, now I'm on a rant. You got me started. So I, I just recently, well, one of my clients, uh, Ismail, who you've met, the fellow from Mexico City, stayed with you guys. Uh, yes. We were talking about the prize money. And I said, you know, I said, I really found it hard to, to wrap my head around the idea that a world championship is three thousand dollars, and I yeah, totally, and if you got yeah, if you got I, third, 
yeah, for a second, you yeah. weren't even covering your flight in your rental. No, car. I get it. I get it. Was, it. It was terrible. Yeah. Like they didn't let the athletes know. Most Till of the, the last minute. Showed up to the podium and like third place, second place, they're not even bringing home enough to cover their expenses. And I'm like, that is hideous at a world championship event. So I was, I was also pretty upset about that uh, because they did not tell any of the athletes if you're going to cut the prize money more than half because it was literally much less than half of last year it was eight grand give them a heads up because i mean me as like my first time i just looked at what the prize money was last year and i couldn't find anything on their website about what it would be this year and i was like okay it must be the same as last year because they're not saying anything so if i get xyz if i get third at least i'm cashing out enough to cover this trip and that was not the case. And uh, to be honest, I was really disappointed in a lot of things uh, with with that. Um, but I I'm a like I try to be really upfront and honest with people, and so I appreciate when that is the same directed the same towards me. And I didn't feel like that was the case this weekend with OCRWC. It was kind of a bummer. Um, it was a great race experience. Uh, the obstacles were pretty fun. Uh, I'm glad I got to learn a lot of new like body awareness while I was there and how to be dynamic through some stuff a little bit better. Um, it was, it was a great experience for me. Um, but there were some things where I was like, wow, they, they really need to treat athletes better. No one's going to come back. Yeah. Well, it, to me, it was a dirty trick. I mean, they knew going in that they weren't going to be able to pay out what they paid the previous year. And I exactly. honestly, you know, I'm an old man. I forget. I, I I was there last year and I was with VGA. So I know I, I know what the payout was, but I totally forgot. And uh, it just was brought to my attention just an hour ago that nobody knew that the payout was not going to be eight grand. It was going to be three grand for first place. And then summarily and chopped away from there down. And I thought. Yeah. You mean to tell me they didn't even know until they got on the podium that they're not going to get paid properly? Ridiculous. And that's just that's just not. And I get it. I, I almost understand why they did it because they probably knew that the likelihood that the participation uh, would be less if if the, if people knew that. Well, I'm not even cover my trip, right? Yep. So I don't know. That was just that's just dirty pool to me, but. I mean, I didn't yeah, I really want to get on this rant, but it, it, it just came to me like an hour ago. And I thought, wow, I'm still trying to digest what they did. Um, so, but anyway, the race looked amazing. Uh, I felt bad that I wasn't there because it seemed like the energy was really high. Uh, I saw mm -hmm. a lot of my friends, you know, hanging out and everybody seemed to be really, really up, up in spirits. And the, the race looked amazing. I really like what they did with the obstacles uh, this year. Um, but you know, the, the bummer was at the end of the day that, that all that other stuff transpired. And, and I mean, this whole thing with the chalk, um, I don't know. Did you, did you confront them and ask them, say, Hey, look, where does it say you can't put chalk on your hands? Uh, so in the rule book, I looked at it, it's under their, like, what's it called? Uh, I can't remember what the title of the section is. But it basically goes through and lists like ski wax, pine tar, liquid chalk. It doesn't list dry, dry chalk. So I confronted them and I was like, hey, you guys need to change that. Because even if, let's say I had read the rule book, which I didn't, because honestly, like I, I had been using it uh, to practice the obstacles before the 15K, after the 3K, because... Uh, your hands get shredded. I was out there for like two or three hours because I was like, I'm not going to get the opportunity to be on these obstacles again. I'm super new. I've only raced Spartan. Uh, so uh, VJ and some other people were like, yeah, you're allowed to go practice the 3K ones because you've already raced it. So I was out there uh, just hanging out by myself for a while. And then a couple of friends joined me and uh, just messing around on all the 3k obstacles and using chalk to keep from ripping. Cause when you don't have a barrier and your hands are, uh, when you're out there just doing obstacles for like two or three hours, it's your hands get pretty shredded if yeah. you don't have something to help you glide better. 
but I still, I paid for it. Um, that night I really, I'm a climber and I could feel like I can feel when my, the skin on my hands is just about to tear. And I kept going cause the last hour that I was practicing the obstacles, some friends joined me. So I was like showing them how I did it. And, uh, there was a volunteer who was kind of like really knowledgeable in some of the stuff and he was showing me how he did it. So I kept going even though my skin hurt. And so I put myself in a pretty big hole and the next morning I woke up and just like barely could open and close my hands very well. So I started warming them up. I used some lotion to like get them from, to not be as dry. And then I brought chalk with me because, uh, I thought like specifically for that weekend, I was like, well, I have this pocket on the back of my shorts and if I've torn, I can put some chalk on my hands, which, I had some, uh, some small tears in my hands and that way it'll make it so it doesn't grab and tear more. And so like quite a few athletes saw me loading it up that had been there three or four years, uh, of racing before. And they had no idea either. And, uh, especially, uh, yeah. Anyways. Um, so they didn't, they didn't know. And, it just so happened that I guess like uh, some people saw not the right people saw me until the race because um, I was using it to practice the day before. No one said anything. I loaded it up that morning before the race. No one said anything. Like I, uh, I used it during the race and no one said anything. Like none of the other guys I was racing with. Uh, said anything about it, and I don't know if any of them really knew or or what. But so how'd they find um, out? I, I don't know. I was doing it in front of everybody, like the camera and volunteers. Like I had no idea it wasn't a rule or that it, it was a rule. So I like, uh, you weren't hiding. I was just, no, I wasn't hiding it at all. Like I was right in front of every, every, uh, major rig where I was like, Oh, this one, like I want to try and not rip. So I'd like grab a little bit and rub it on my, my hands. Um, and no one said anything, but I guess they knew almost all race. Uh, and then when I crossed the line, they just let me know. And I'm actually really glad that I struggled on, uh, the coverage doesn't really show it, but Tyler and I, uh, came back together on the top of the last climb and I felt really good. And then I, I botched two of the obstacles again and lost him. And I was actually, now I'm incredibly thankful that my obstacle game was not as good as it should have been, or it, I mean, it's better than it ever has been, but, uh, I have a lot to work on and I'm glad because it would have sucked even more to cross the line first and then and have then that taken away. And then by, and then by deferral, Tyler would have won and that would have sucked to have like a world championship. And then with like a little asterisk by it, yeah, yeah. not crossing line first. So yeah. I'm super happy for Tyler. And I am grateful that like everything happened that week in the way that it did. Um, cause even, even like, uh, I saw the race recap by the OCR report yesterday and they show me going out in second. And then all it says, uh, they like take me out of the equation after the first like sentence of Ryland chases in second. And then it basically just says, uh, instead of showing that like Tyler wasn't by himself the whole time. Yeah. It says, it says something like Tyler creates a three minute or a four minute lead over Atkins and uh, huh. Kempson. Yeah. And then it just basically shows him crossing the line and it says like Kempson and Atkins battled for second. Yeah. And I was just like, man, even in the race report, like I'm just gone. Like the race results, it's always weird seeing them. And I'm like, I'm nowhere on the list. And then it's even weirder when there's like a video replay. And after like, all these clips where I know Tyler and I were together uh, or like close or I was closing a gap or whatever, like all of that, that is gone out of the race report. And it's just like Tyler won by four minutes. And that's like, you weren't even there. Bad. It's like, dang it. <laughs> like this sucks. Like I really feel like I showed up and was not even there. And it like, it, you know, it hurts a little bit, but I also like, I totally understand 
the principle of the rule is what I understand, but I told them they need to fix the technicality. Like if you're going to take the time to list liquid chalk, just take the liquid out of it, say any form of chalk. And that's what I said. That was my two cents. Um, that day after the race, all I was worried about was that people would, uh, would think that because I'm new to the sport, they'd think that I'm like a win at any means possible kind of guy. And like that I was cheating and that's all I cared about. But, uh, everyone was super understanding and, uh, like ultimately a race result doesn't matter. Prize money does not matter. So like, well, I, honestly, again, you realize that I'm a fly on the wall, right? And, uh, I've got no skin in the game other than the athletes I work with. And, you know, obviously I, I'm, I'm very interested in the sport. I'm connected to the sport. And it just, it caught me by surprise because of all the things, I mean, I can understand like um, if you screwed up an obstacle and you moved on and you just rolled through it and they caught you later and they DQ'd you, that's legit, you know, but something as obscure as saying, well, you know, he's using chalk, you know, and I think everybody that would, would hear that would say, what? He did, so what? I mean... I mean, yeah. okay, so you can wear the blog mitts or the bleg mitts or whatever it is. Any of those, I mean, I'm sure that there's a variety of different grip-oriented um, devices people are putting on their hands to save their hands from the obstacles. And uh, year after year, I've seen that happen. And nobody, nobody through, you know, through any kind of complaint, Spartan doesn't do that. You know, nobody ever said in Spartan that you can't use chalk that I'm aware of. And I just, uh, I just... I'm just curious to know whether it was in the rules last year, you know? Uh, they said it's been in the rules for a while, but honestly, like, I don't really want to go down that. No, hole. I know. I've, I've I, talked I, with everyone about this. I've been seen, I've, I've seen screenshots of other athletes with, with chalk and everything. And like, I don't really want to. No, no, I'm not listening. Believe me, I'm not suggesting chalk, you do. I, so. I, I'm just, I'm just speaking from my own uh, edification here is that, it just caught me by surprise and I thought it was kind of a crappy thing to do. So yeah. anyway, all that aside, North American championships, you had an amazing race. Thank you. Right? Yeah. You had an amazing race. And uh, so what do you, what are your, what are your aspirations? And I, I, I heard in a clip where you said, basically you want it all. You want You want to win everything. And obviously that's, yeah, of course you do. Right. That's a good attitude. Are you going to delve off into some of the other activities? Are you going to do some deca fit? Are you going to do some high rocks? What what are what are your thoughts moving forward? I think I have a really really good shot uh, at high at high rocks worlds, but first at deca world championships. Uh, I know a lot of people are going to say like I'm too small, which I think is funny because like you look at Rich Ryan, um, Dylan Scott, like like. Rich Ryan is probably a little smaller than I am, or maybe weighs a little less than me or around the same. And then I know Dylan is probably less than me. And there's some other top guys that are uh, fairly like, they're not larger than me. So I always kind of smile when uh, people point at me and they're like, Oh, you're a little big for a mountain runner. You're a little small for high rocks. And I'm like, man, just like I I've been told my whole life, that I'm too small or too big for things. And I think it's a, I think it's fun now to just show people that they really have no idea who I am. And like, I know who I am and I know what I'm capable of. So, uh, I have, uh, I do have the, the, the world records in both the Deca mile and the Deca fit. Um, that was my first Deca fit where I set that. And I definitely know that I can cut a significant amount of time off that. Um, especially now that I'm doing a little more speed work because I almost never do flat running. But the last two weeks, uh, just to make, uh, I call it a false summit. So a lot of people also probably have mentioned that like, oh, Ryland's peaking right now, blah, blah, blah. And the truth is I actually just came out of my base phase at North American Championships. Um, it was just my first 10 to 12 weeks of uninterrupted running since I was in a boot last year at this time. Um, cause after being in a boot for 12 weeks, I had a lot of soft tissue damage and, uh, I wish I would have had a more progressive doctor. I had a really conservative doctor and told me not to do a lot of stuff. 
when I should have been doing some sort of mobility outside of my boot to keep things moving. Um, so between that and some ankle sprains and some, some other things that were going on in life, I really, uh, had some hard, hard things to get through this spring. And so, but I was racing anyways, because I love racing. Like racing to me, isn't about the, the result as much as finding the best version of myself. So for instance, Veerman had like almost two minutes uh, on me this last weekend at, at one point, but I really didn't care that much because I knew that there were at least, there was at least one more big climb. And also I knew that on the descents I was holding back and ready to, to rip a little bit more. And so I, I figured either he's better than me and he's going to open up more of a gap and that's fine as long as I can look at myself in the face and like as long as I can look in the mirror and say I gave it my best shot, I'm happy. But that also is the same at North American Champs where no one was really even close. But every like if I'm in first or I'm in last, it's still a race against myself. Uh, I don't really race as much for placement as I used to when I was mountain biking. For me now, it's like, how empty can you make yourself, Ryland? Like, can you go out there and find the best man that you are? And that's really how I race now. Say the only exception to that is when, say I'm in first and I'm going into the last obstacle and I have a massive gap and say we're at Spartan and there's a 30 burpee penalty. I will tone down the risk that I take through obstacles. Like the last one was Twister at North American Champs is the last failable obstacle. And I went nice and slow through it because I knew I had a big gap and it was wet. And since I was the first one going through all the obstacles, none of them, all the water was still sitting on them because it hadn't been spun off. So every obstacle I went up to, if I was the first one to touch it, which was usually the case, uh, there would be like a shower of water that would happen when I would spin it. And so I went extra slow on a couple of those. Um, so that's the only exception. But as I get more comfortable on obstacles, that might change. Um, but for now, like, it, it's always going to be the same. Or I really hope that it always stays the same where no matter where I'm at, whether I'm five minutes ahead or five minutes behind, it's still going to be a race against myself. So, so I want to back you up a little bit. You said something that, you know, the people trying to gauge you relative to your capacity in different sports by your weight, your height, whatever. Tell me, cause I've never met you. And I'm just curious to know, I've seen it on video, but video doesn't tell you anything. What do you weigh? Uh, I actually don't know. I stopped weighing. If you myself. had a guess, what do you think? 175 to 185. Okay. And you're tall, tall? Six foot. Maybe a Okay, you're six more. foot and 180, let's call it 180 pounds. Why would anybody think you're not big enough to, to play in the high rocks field? That's what I don't understand. There's just been like comments that, that people have made. Like, I think uh, part of the reason is I look really, really lean because my body fat percentage is super low right now. Um, but maybe that makes me, I think it actually makes me look bigger because the muscle definition is, is greater with that. Um, but I think people might think I'm leaning down and getting smaller when I'm, a, I'm actually maintaining size fairly well. Um, or at least that's what it seems like. And I know I'm getting stronger at the same time as getting faster just because of my own performance metrics that I track. So, uh, the, the other thing is people ultimately, they don't know who I am cause I haven't raced. Uh, I haven't been at my full capacity until probably like July of this year, just because of injuries and stuff. And then the last year they only saw me from March until July when I fractured my heel. So, and I wasn't really racing that often either. So, so ultimately like people just don't know and people like to put you in a box, um, which is, which is fine. Like people try and put you in a box your whole life. And my job 
is to show people they don't have to live in a box and their job is to try and put me in one and my job is to prove them wrong. Well, and so that's try, try, how I feel like. Yeah, try to appreciate that my day-to-day -day is working with athletes. And for the past close to 30 years, mind you, I meet athletes that come to me interested in my assessment of their abilities and helping them to better understand how they might approach their work so they become better at what they're trying to achieve. So yeah. I am the proverbial fly in the wall. I don't speak in first person. When, when for example, I had a, the client that I was with this past weekend when you got, when I should have been in Vermont, you know, good athlete, female athlete, competes in high rocks, competes Ironman, things like this. And her obvious consideration when she was seeing me, and this is a very common question I get, where do you think I should be? Do you think I should go long? Do you think I should go short? Should I try this kind of, you know, they're trying to get a better sense of the, or gauge where they should go with their athleticism. And mm -hmm. I'm just the guy that figures it out. I, I put them on a VO2 max test. That tells me a ton. I watch the way they move. That tells me a ton. And if, if, if you ask me today, well, where do you think I should go? I would say, I don't know. You know why I don't know? Because I've not ever assessed you. I, I don't trust mm -hmm. an opinion. And having been in this business for as long as I've been in this business and virtually working with that, all sorts of athletes from all, all walks of life, I still learned, I, I reserve my opinion until I have better facts. And I figure that out in my lab. And then we can have a conversation. So once I've got all this data and we're looking at the way you're moving, I got video and stuff, we could sit down and have a conversation um, about where you've been, what you've done, and why you might want to move to this direction or that direction. But it needs to be an educated and intelligent response, not just some opinion because, you know, I'm trying to, you know, punch down on you or, or, or punch up on somebody. That's just damn stupid, right? So um, anyway... I caught what you said. I thought, well, what? I, I don't know. You can't do high rise. 180 pounds? Come on, man. I mean, look, I worked with Hunter McIntyre. I worked with him for, you know, close to seven years. I still, you know, we're, we're close and we talk a lot. And I've watched his body change over time relative to the things he's thrown at it. I've got assessments to back everything that I saw him do in various stages of his competitive life. And we'll have these conversations still. What, what do you think I should do? And uh, I, I never, you know, if we're on the phone, I'll say, you just got to come see me, man. I, I don't know. I, we're going to take a look at it. But I've seen him yeah. from 185 pounds to 215 pounds over the course of his career. And he's mm -hmm. settled in. He's settled in at about 205, I think is kind of where he's at now, 205, maybe 210, which is a little, in my opinion, a little bigger than it, that would be premium for a high rocks competition. I yeah. think based on what you told me, Around 180 pounds is probably the sweet spot, because the lower the lower um, your body weight cost when you're running, the more advantage you have. And so you're at enough you're at enough body weight and strength to ratio, uh, weight ratio where you're you're capable of doing the exercises, but light enough to throw down a decent run. That's where you want to be. I mean, if you told me you were 145 pounds. I'd start asking you about how your struggle looks with the, the sled push, the pull, you know, those heavy, those heavy efforts, which are, is, I got guys I work with that are in that, that realm, 140, 155 pounds. Guess what I make them do? They're married to the sled. They're married to anything heavy. So they could pr try to find a way to muster their way through based on too, being too light. So anyway, I'm with you. I think, I think that your weight is, is prime for an event like that. If anything, it's probably a little too much to to be competitive with a guy like Hawk Call on a big mountain. You know, the, the fact that you smoked him in that last race um, tells me that he's got a little work to do. He could probably gain a couple pounds and he'd be in a better place, my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is uh, I think it's funny. Like, I, I came from cross-country mountain biking where weight is – is very focused on and then road cycling is even more so and that's why i don't weigh myself anymore because ultimately i don't care i eat when i feel like my body needs it 
and I try not to eat when I feel like my body doesn't need it. And I'm for the majority of the time, probably 80-90% of the time, I eat whole foods and that helps me stay intuitive with, with my eating. And then I train for how I want to perform and I allow my body to adapt to that. And I might tweak things to like, I'll eat more avocados, dark cherries, um, certain things that help boost testosterone. Or I might eat stuff that maybe will help me get my sleep cycle in order a little bit better. I wear blue blockers in the middle of the night when I'm up at work so that I can fall back asleep faster. Like I, I realize the science behind some things. Like people, I don't think people understand how analytical my brain is and how, I, like I'm a cyclist. That's about as like percentage gain oriented person as you can get like cycle you look at ryan atkins and i love hanging out with him because he is more analytical about ocr than i am because i'm using it as a break from being super analytical about things and he's still got that that cyclist mentality of like i'm going to find the half a percent in this chain like i'm going to put ceramic lube on this chain so that i can be half of a quarter of a percent faster and and i love learning about exercise science i love learning about nutrition Uh, i take my health pretty seriously and so i think it's funny when people like people who don't know me they don't understand that they don't understand that i lifted weights all through high school for soccer um that i was like the reason I run the way that I do has a lot to do with me spending five or six years on a bike. But the reason I'm progressing so fast is because I have a massive engine and now I'm getting the neuromuscular adaptations on how to run better as I run more. And then on top of that, um, I spent 12 years of my life in soccer cleats. So because you have no padding, you run a certain way if you want to like from five years old until I was 17, almost all of my miles were in a soccer cleat on grass. So do I have the most efficient road running? Maybe not, but as far as like soft ground and running with a minimal shoe, uh, it developed like a a fairly decent technique. Like I'm definitely working on technique and slowly progressing in that, but a lot of it is just happening as my body remembers when I was 16, 17 running on a soccer field at like, you do a lot of running in soccer at like your 800 or 400 meter pace because you're not quite all out sprinting, but you got to get somewhere quick. So I was like a center midfielder for a lot of that. And I was the kid on the team who was supposed to shut other players down. So when I was on offense, I would break away from the player I was shutting down, like their, their best player, whatever it was. And I would go find my own space and fill the space and try and play offense with my team. And then when the other team would get the ball, I would immediately have to find my player that I was trying to shut down or the, whatever needed to happen and sprint there and then run with them. And so it was a lot of like, I think that helped develop, uh, start, developing my aerobic engine and then as i progressed into mountain biking uh their cycling is probably one of the biggest engine builders you can do because your volume is so much higher than what you can handle running so now like i drop if i drop a 50 mile week i'm like man i only did like seven or eight hours of running that's like that's nothing but you know a lot of people uh, that's a high volume back back in the day before, you know, my, my day job before there was OCR was triathlon. And um, I produced, well, I didn't produce, I directed the first professional triathlon for CBS Sports in 1983. Okay. Yeah. So I came into where I am today uh, through triathlon and myself being, you know, a triathlete at the time and cycling a lot. Uh I was going to share with you when you said this about the weight, how geeky they are about the weight. You know, before there was carbon fiber bikes, there were aluminum and titanium bikes. 
And I'm, mm -hmm. I've got a video I could show you. you. You get a kick out of it. When the when we did, I used to own the Maui Triathlon. I had friends that they would take like a, a, a drill, like a little quarter inch drill bit, and every on their seat post just drill little dimples to collectively, you know, kind of screech off the weight of their bike. So their chain ring on their bike, everything that they that had a little bit of metal on it, they'd put these little dimples. And it looked like the, the, the bike had, you know, measles or something because it had all these little divots in it. And when you took all of that together and put it in a cup to figure out how much weight they actually took off the bike, it might have added up to, I don't know, an ounce maybe, <laughs> right? Yep. And, I'm thinking, and I used to say, dude, lose a pound. Lose a pound. Lose five pounds. Forget about your bike. Get your motor working and lose a little bit of body fat and, you know, you're going to be in a better place. But these days, it's crazy. I mean, the, the technology in the, in the sport and the bikes, they're, it's really pretty amazing. But anyway, just short story. Um, I came into uh, gait analysis on athletes as a bike fitter. Okay. So try to appreciate, I used to do, before the, again, before this sport, uh, I did a lot of work with triathletes and I would come in and they'd come into my lab and I'd do like a VO2 max on the bike and do a VO2 max on the run. And I would find that their threshold on the bike was commonly 20 beats lower than it was when they ran. And yeah. I would do the bike test first. And my conclusion was, dude, you need to learn how to ride your bike because you're way inefficient on that bike. And then it just one day dawned on me that I didn't realize that mechanically they were inept because they were on the bike incorrectly. When I figured it out, I hired one of the best bike fitters in the country to come spend time with me and teach me how to fit a bike. And so on a bike fit, you're, I'm sure you're familiar, there's five points, four, five contact points, your feet, your hands, yeah. and your butt. And when you get that sorted properly, you could just turn your back on it because you're, every time you get on the bike, you're going to be there correctly. And this is a yep. closed-chained activity, right? Where running is an open-chain activity. You jump in the air and you come back to earth. And hopefully what you when you land, you're going to land in a position where you're going to be able to create better force production off the ground and so on and so forth. So I started to realize the importance of changing the way people move and helping them to be more efficient in the way they move. And that kind of spurred the whole thing. And I, 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 that revelation came to me something like 15 years ago, right? And so that became the most dominant thing that I do in my business is work with people's movement patterns and help them to become more efficient. I quit bike fitting. I don't, that's not even on my website anymore. I don't talk about it because I hate doing bike fits. You get greasy, you get dirty, and I, you know people bring me their scummy bikes. You think they take the time to clean it before they bring it to you. They don't do that, right? So anyway, long story short, I totally get what you're saying. Totally get what you're saying. Um, For the record, my bike is almost always spotless. Yeah. As is mine. By the way, as is mine. Because yeah. if, if I'm riding my bike and I hear anything other than the hum of the wheel on the road, I want to yeah. go home and fix it. You know, I just can't, yeah, I can't tolerate it. It drives me crazy, right? So yeah. what's, what's next? Okay, we got off on a rant, but what's next? What are you going to do next? Uh, so Lord willing, obviously, like you never really know what's going to happen in your life. But the game plan is I have uh, Firefighter Combat Worlds in two weeks. Um, I'm not focusing on it at all. I'm not doing enough heavy lifting. Like you think people say, oh, you got to you got to have heavy lifting for high rocks. It's like, no, the heaviest thing that you push is only like 450 pounds. That's not that heavy. Um, you're so the basically it's a race where you're in all of your gear. You carry hose loads upstairs, haul, uh, hoist like hand over hand, uh, another hose load, run down the stairs, do a Kaiser sled run around some cones, drag a hose, and then drag a 170 pound dummy backwards. And you're doing it all in full gear. Um, and to, to generate enough force to get up those stairs and also run between the stations with all your gear, you've got to be explosive. Like the fastest guys do it all in under a minute 20. Wow. Um, but it's just, it just happens to be in my backyard. It's in Utah this year. So it's only like an hour, hour and a half away. 
from my house. So I'm going to go ahead and do that and just do it for fun, um, which will be good preparation for the battle bunker that Hunter's doing. Uh, as long as I get accepted for that, I think I should be. Um, and then straight after that, I'm headed to Trive Trifecta Worlds. Uh, I want to showcase that my running is continuing to get better and also just have a great time in Greece. And then I'll head back from that and I will be doing DecaFit World Championships. And I think people will start to realize that uh, you can, if your engine is big enough, if you build your engine big enough, it doesn't matter as much what you're trying to do as long as you have a broad enough a broad enough base of skill sets and then also strength. So for instance, if you tell Hunter and I to go lift up something one to 10 times, he's gonna lift up more. If you tell us to run 10 miles and then lift up something one to 10 times and he has to hold the same pace that I do beforehand, I could probably lift close to as much as him because his muscular fatigue is going to be higher. So the problem is people don't understand that when you have such a high ceiling of aerobic fitness, your strength in these races required like DecaFit or High Rocks, if you have a high enough aerobic ceiling, maybe your max strength isn't as much, but your fatigue is less going into something heavy. So then you have more muscle reserve to lift it. And so I don't think people really understand that uh, the science behind that. And so what I'm focusing on, uh, because I coach myself and, and I love this kind of stuff is continuing to build my running economy because it's something I'm new to and that's something I want to get better at. Like I want to be a really good mountain runner. I don't care about the flats. I don't care about dirt roads. I never run on the road. Um, I want to be a good mountain runner. That's what I care about. And so I spend a lot of time running in the mountains and then I also spend a lot of time on my bike and supplementing my running with higher volume activities such as cycling. Uh, I just started going to a ninja gym, but I've been a rock climber for a little while now. Um, and then on top of that, I do a lot of weighted hiking because I like to do speed flying, which is, it's like paragliding. So I hike to the top of mountains with my gear all the time, just up like 30 to 40% grades with trekking poles and uh, just bushwhacking some of the time. And like, I get a lot of low impact, but also force training because of that, because you add like 30 or 40 pounds to your body weight. And then on top of that, you're on a 30 to 40% grade. It's essentially like doing a weighted Stairmaster for an hour. And I do it for fun because it's what I love to do. And uh, th that's why I think I have a very good chance of hitting all of these because my volume is high enough to still give me fitness gains. Like I'm still getting aerobic fitness benefits from all of this um, because my body, as I get better at running, everything else stays the same. Like I, no matter what, I'm gonna be going on my hiking flies. I'm gonna be going on my mountain bike rides for fun. That's all like zone one, zone two training. And then as I get fitter as a runner, I'm able to bump up my volume just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then you add uh, my strength training into that as well. And as I get stronger, I bump up my strength training a little bit more, just a little bit more and a little bit more. And because of that, I still have the core uh, like aerobic gains that I'm getting from all my zone one, zone two. But also now that I'm out of my base phase, you're going to see me start to sprinkle some zone three. I have been doing quite a zone three, like a, a zone three, like hour and a half ish longish run once a week in my base phase. But now since I'm racing so much, the reason I'm starting to get faster, even without doing zone four, zone five and training very often is because I'm racing in those zones. So every race I go to, I'm at or above what I've been training at and I get benefits from that. So and then can, now I, can I slow you down for a second? Things, yeah, yeah. Because you're you're in my wheelhouse, big and hard right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I and this what you've just said to me uh, is something I've heard historically, and it's what we've all been chasing down and following is how to best approach training. 
especially because I've been in the business that I've been in for so long. All the data I've collected over time and all the cause and effect relationships I've seen through clinical diagnostics on athletes. And so here's where I'm going to really throw a wrench into what you've been telling me. and You're probably going to lose sleep over it. Uh, the concept of really building your base and then moving away from your base into more intensity uh, in hopes that, you know, there's progressive improvements in your potential to work is, is not as efficient as one would like to believe. And a, a good example of this would be the, 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 the field testing I did on Hunter McIntyre, Okay. I worked with Hunter McIntyre in 2015 when he was 190 pounds and trying to figure out a way to beat Hobie Call up, up a mountain in Vermont. And, you know, Hobie Call's not a very big guy. He's got, a, he's got a decisive advantage in running up a hill over a guy that weighs 190 pounds. This is how I met Hunter McIntyre. Back then when we trained and I worked with him, his aerobic engine relative to his mass was incredible. I mean, incredible. And I mean, yeah. I'm not just talking about an opinion. I, I physically were working, put a monitor on him, data coming back to me, take him out for, a, you know, a 14 mile run, have him drag me, his video out there, you can see him dragging me around on a bike at a six minute mile pace with me on the brakes. And uh, I've seen some incredible things. So 160 beats per minute for him was 66% fat utilization, very aerobic. His VO2 score was just touching 70 which is pretty darn good for a big guy like that. Okay. Well, I'm just saying 70, a VO2 of 70, I've seen massive uh, performances out of a 70. When I yeah. met v, uh, VJ Jones, he was a 70. Now the best I've seen out of him was 79.6. And, and I've, trust me when I tell you, I've, I've tested everybody, you know, I, I think yeah. almost everybody, you know. And so I see performance relative to potential, the engine you speak of, right? Flip the switch, get away from endurance-based training, go into CrossFit, go into high rocks, hard, a lot of heavy lifting. VO2 score suffers. Fitter than ever been before, VO2 suffers. Threshold suffers. Performance is through the roof. He's fitter now than he's ever been in his, his entire life, and the numbers don't bear it out. And the reason why he's able to perform is because his anaerobic system is so efficient. He's become yeah. far and away greater at the capacity to live in that toxic environment. And not only because he's dealing with the toxicity, but he's converting, he's clearing and converting that, that energy um, that is being um, collected in his working muscles, which is the lactate. And so, um, and I wrote a book about it because it took, it took me four years to kind of conclude yeah. the concept of moving in and out of that anaerobic energy system all the time. Not like in the beginning or end of the season or later in the season, all the time. And seeing profound improvements and in endurance athletes that uh, I've, I've had, you could go back to look at some of the YouTube videos I did conversation with one of my clients, Blue Benedum. He His average pace over 20 miles was 515 with a heart rate that was touching 130 beats per minute, where previously yeah. he was the same type of work, slower, 530 pace was at about 160 beats per minute. And his PR his PR for Boston was 223. And, and I mean, changing his will and want to get into that anaerobic energy made a significant difference in his, in his training. So, I mean, it just, just because you touched on it, just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm telling you, conceptually, moving in and out of your anaerobic energy system all the time, not dominantly, you've, if you're still in the endurance world, you need to be dominantly aerobic, don't get me wrong. But being able to visit that anaerobic metabolism and make friends in that environment is key to success when you're trying to go in both directions, high intensity, long duration, moving back and forth between these different segments. It's huge. And that's, that's why you'll see me start to improve because, uh, so at least for me coming off all of the soft tissue stuff that I was dealing with, I was steering clear of a lot of the very hard intensity and also the heavier, uh, heavier weights for a, 
you know, a few months. You had to. And now that I'm starting to rebuild that and I feel very healthy and I'm, I'm very much intuitive with my body and my training now, especially since uh, two to three nights a week I'm at work. So I could get anywhere from eight hours where we get zero calls to zero sleep where we just run all night. So based off that, I actually adjust my training every single week. And basically I have in my head, I have these key sessions that I need to hit. And one of them is typically a, like a zone, high zone two, low zone three, long run, where I'm really working on that aerobic capacity. Um, but it's long enough to where by the end of the long run, my heart rate starts to creep up into that higher zone three as I fatigue and I get a little dehydrated. Uh, so that's actually today for me. I'm so I'm super excited to go run for a long time and at a pretty good clip. Um, and then I also try and do one session, one to two sessions where it's more of a neuromuscular benefit. Because for me, without coming from a running background, uh, I have to run fast to learn how to run fast. So basically, I run faster than my race pace which also teaches me to clear that lactic acid and use, and you know, you, you touched on it as well. Your body can learn how to use that lactic acid as fuel as well. Um, so that's super neat. Uh, and that's, that's one thing where I kind of merge the two where essentially I'll run to the point where I feel like my form is starting to suffer because I'm getting muscularly, I'm getting too tired. And that's usually where I flirt with the line. Um, and then that also promotes some um, lactic acid buffering benefits as well because I'm building that lactic acid. I'm regularly reaching that point, but then I'm learning to clear it because I take a rest and then I go straight back into it. So I might jog for a little bit or walk for 100 meters and then it's straight back into another 400 or something like that. Um, and then another session will usually be kind of like the, the sprinkle of whatever I'm trying to focus on. So right now, uh, that'll probably look like just because I want to be better running in the mountains. I'm going to blue mountain, uh, in Canada for the last Spartan sure. series race, mainly just to visit my Canadian friends and have some fun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I'm going to go up there and race and it's a lot of repeated. It sounds like it's a lot of repeated Hills with technical terrain. So I'll be doing, like zone four work on repeated hills with technical terrain. So, so, so uh, here's what I'm suggesting. When you, when yeah. you, when you go out, let's just say today when you go out and run yeah. and I'm going to send you a copy of my book because okay. I can't do that with you. Here today. I love reading. I, I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. That's all okay. it is. I mean, you could say that ah, I read it. He's crazy, but that's okay. But here's what I'm suggesting to you. When you go out and run today, and, and I don't like to use zones. Zones to me, um, I won't even go there. But, but at the end of the day, there's this metabolic turn point. Okay, let's use that as a, as a thought process. Your metabolic turn point is where your body is shifting into more anaerobic metabolism versus being aerobic. And yep. so, um, you know, the analytics about an, uh, anaerobic threshold and lactate threshold, just throw that stuff out the window. I'm looking at respiratory exchange ratio and looking at the percentage of fat versus sugar being used relative to task, relative to heart rate. And so what I look at is, let's just say we're aerobic. And let's just hypothetically, let's say that we're going to keep you at 140 beats per minute. We know that that's going to be a nice aerobic treatment. I'm just using numbers. Yep. And then you go out at 140, you stay there, say 10, 15 minutes. Things are starting to feel really sweet. You feel warmed up. Your body's ready to go. And then we're just going to move. We're going to jump up and we're going to punch. We're going to punch. Let's say we punch up to 170 beats per minute until your body starts to tell you, you know what? It's a little too much. And you respect what your body's telling you. Intuitively, you just back off. And so now let's come back down to like 145, 150. Clear some of that lactate. Give your body a chance to figure out what to do with it. And then when you're ready again, maybe you revisit, but this time not so high. Maybe this time you go to 160 and you sit there for a bit. And then same thing applies. When you feel like, oh, it's a little too much, you're going to back out. So if I was to put it into percentages, the time spent low, moderate, and high intensity, it might be 65% of the time was spent aerobic, 
And then maybe in the middle, there was a little bit uh, less. And then towards the end, a little less than that. So you broke up the two hours worth of work and 70, 65% of it was aerobic. And if you did, now I'm not saying doing this every day, but let's just say you did do this every day for a week. And you looked at the tail of the tape at the end of the week. And if you concluded that uh, collectively over the course of the week, the greatest percentage contribution to my work was aerobic, bingo. I needed to be dominantly yeah. aerobic for the sport I'm involved in. But I need the snap. I need that power. I need to be able to respond to people when they, when they throw something at me and not get burned up because I'm not comfortable being in that toxic environment. So all of those, all of those uh, bases are covered because in your training, it's always omnipresent as opposed to segregating the work where one day you're aerobic, one day you're doing this other thing, one day you're doing something else and hoping at the end of the week that collectively it all comes together and you become a better athlete. I, I, I kind of got on top of this and started seeing it and started throwing it at various athletes and seeing profound improvements, marathoners, crossfitters, high rocks, all across the gamut, different athletes, same concept, just various sprinklings based on demand, but what they needed to do relative to test, huge difference. And I never, yeah. ever speak about zones. And I never tell a guy, go do zone two for, for the next uh, four weeks before you go off and to do something else. Because to me, that's just yeah, a waste yeah. of time. I don't agree with that at all because uh, yeah. So, so I, maybe I miscommunicated in the way that I'm training, but like I definitely, so my base phase for me is more of a prep to, to build into like a build phase for me is specifying towards something that I'm racing. So for me, I'm specifying towards November where I know I'm going to need a moderate amount of strength, but not a ton for Decafit. Like it's really not that heavy. Um, and I need a massive aerobic engine to recover between the race weekends. Like I need to be able to recover quickly, which is already happening between race pace efforts. Um, and then also another thing that I'm going to need is some really, really solid running because the better I can get at my running, the less everything else is going to tax me. Lowers the cost. So yeah, exactly. So that's why had like my my 5k time in the deck of it is going to be much lower this next round because i'm focusing on running fast flat stuff maybe once to two times a week and i haven't focused that at all like almost never in my life have i focused on flat fast running so like i've already seen my 400 repeat times have already dropped like per 400 they've already dropped <coughs> four to five seconds per rep what are you running massive what are the 400? So I used to be, so for like a 400 by 12, I used to be around like a 72 second. Um, now I'm more around like a 67. Um, and that was, for 12? that was a week ago. So, sorry, what? For 12? Did you say for 12, 12 by 400? So yes, 412 times? Yes, sir. And and you, they told you with, 67 with 100 for meter. A hundred meter walk between, which is about a minute and thirty recovery. Yeah, me. yeah, but you're you're still coming to sixty sevens at twelve. Uh huh. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so like uh, it would it will be somewhere, um, somewhere between sixty seven to sixty eight, or maybe sixty eight point five. Still really good. But uh, I honestly I haven't haven't done that workout for probably about two weeks now. Um, but I'll let you know next time I do it. We'll see how it goes. But. So I, look, I didn't mean to geek out, but I, you know, I, I, I get that you appreciate the concepts of training and, and you know, taking care oh, of your I own love business. It. Yeah, we, we could do this all day long. And I, I and oh, I, yeah. I apologize for taking you off on this rant. I just, you know, it just my hair starts standing up when people start talking about training. Yep. But um, look, Rylan, I I'm very pleased to have a chance to meet you virtually, at least. And obviously look forward to somewhere along the way. I'm going to bump into you somewhere. And uh, I wish you the best, man. I, th I, I love seeing the young guys coming up and, and uh, you know, new faces show up on the scene. You know, uh, I really believe that, you know, I, look, I used to work with professional boxers. And, wow. you know, when a boxer gets to be 30 years old, the clock's ticking, man. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like I've worked with the middleweight champion of the world, featherweight champion of the world, powerful high 
caliber athletes and old man time is just leaning on them you know it's over time and in and, and every sport it's that way right and it's almost sad to watch when you see really great athletes they're going to get to a place where they're just not going to be able to hold up to the to the younger guys coming up and i watch you know i'm an old man i'll be 70 years old this year i'm an old man i, I watch this stuff happen and my experience is you know like wow you know, what a great run this guy had. And wow, look at this new guy coming along. And I've seen that. In, I saw that in VJ when I met him. You know, I said, well, here's a kid that's got potential. And, you know, one day, and I remember everybody discounting him, you know, like, eh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, he's kind of young. You know, he's not really got any, you know, I'm like, keep an eye on him, buddy. You know, and lo and behold, there he, there he is, right? So uh, I see that in you. I see that in some of these guys coming up now. And I think it's refreshing. So um, I appreciate you taking the time to share a few minutes with me. And uh, again, I, I really, really hope that one day we'll get a chance to connect. Me too. All right. I think we would spend a lot of time talking about Yeah, we're going to wear each other out. I can feel it. About. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't forget. Forgive me if I ever get you on my treadmill. That's all. I mean, I, you know what? I'm looking forward to it one of these days. All right. Well, look, thank you so much again. Best of luck. Thank you. Appreciate you having me.